So many of you may not know me, or some of you may not. My name's Jeff. I'm one of the elders here, one of the four elders here at uh, Redeemer. And it has been a while since I've preached and stood behind the pulpit. And I don't take it lightly, and I'm thankful to the other elders and to you, the church, for allowing me this opportunity. Um, you know, I just, I'm thankful for my fellow elders, um, you know, for Russ and Sam and Olumide. I feel truly like I stand on the shoulders of giants when I'm with them. So I'm thankful for that. And um, thank you guys for this. Um, there was, and it was my fault, um, there was a printing error. So your bulletin references Psalm 14. It's actually Psalm 19. I think we've corrected the slide. And so, um, anyway, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14, but for context, I want to read uh, starting in verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I've entitled this sermon, Getting a Mental Grip. And so we will be talking about our mind today. So our key words are mind, our thought, our, our mind, thoughts, and control. So some may know, some may not, that I have always, always, in all my years, been known as a fast eater. Um, I cannot help it. I guess I'm a fast eater. I have a tendency to think other people are actually slow eaters. But the fact that I eat the way I do always seems to bother a lot of people. I, I don't know why. So I have consequently, over the years, I've heard it all. I've heard slow down. I've heard, watch your fingers. It's not going anywhere. No, or it might be, no one's going to take it from you, right? Did you taste it? Or my mother would say, slow down, enjoy it. I, I don't know why she assumed I did not enjoy my food. Sometimes I enjoyed it two hands at a time. But it is what it is. Either way. So, with that thought in mind, I, I want you to think about, imagine a large feast that is prepared for you on a busy day. You just got things to do. You see this feast, you smell it, but consequently you gulp a few bites and you head out the door. Truth is that you have not benefited from the full course. You have not feasted, you have tasted. So to that end, maybe those people who told me to slow down had something 
to say because they did have a point. Because I can tell you the only time that I ever really felt like ATVS was in the Navy, but we had literally 10 minutes to run down from a flight deck to eat food as fast as we could so we couldn't sit down and then run back up and finish your day. And there is a difference between literally gulping your food down. I mean, I don't know. I can't say I tasted it. It might have not have been a bad thing at that meal. But we want to consider a highly undervalued and underused tool, or you might even say weapon, in our war with sin. And God has given this to us. But unfortunately, I would say my personal estimation is over the last century or so that this tool has fallen into disuse very much, and that is biblical meditation. Um, so I'll just have to make a book plug, because the other guys are actually a lot more well-read than I, than I am, but I will say that this book had a big impact. I mean, a lot of kind of what we learned this morning was kind of born from my study through, and it's called God's Battle Plan for the Mind by David Saxton. Subtitle is The Puritan Practice of Biblical Meditation. I cannot recommend that book enough to you guys. Um, and I would hope that you would seek it out and, and read it. Um, so as we explore the idea of biblical meditation, I want us to uh, look up... I forgot my clock here. Um, I look, we're going to be looking at probably approximately five different headings, depending on how I do this. But, uh, so we're going to look at the need for biblical meditation. We're going to look at meditation defined... Meditation, it applies to the Lord's Day. Enemies of meditation. And some practical advice on getting started with it and staying with it. So in verses 12 and... Turn it right here. In verses 12 and 13, I'll read those again. It says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent... From hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. So, the need for biblical meditation. Um, you could also call this sin is not your friend. So, we have, from our text, we have two levels of sin, if you will. Um, I call them known and unknown. Or you might, you know, he, the psalmist says, uh, who can discern his errors? Keep me innocent from hidden faults. So hidden faults. Verse 12. Sometimes, I want us to be aware that sometimes we're unaware of sin. It is possible to go about your daily life um, thinking one way or another, and then ultimately, sometimes you may inadvertently be silently daydreaming about something that you don't have, that God has not blessed you with, something that you are coveting. Um, and that, when we start, it might start small and innocuously in our lives and in our hearts, but ultimately that discontent can breed, or um, that covetousness can breed discontentment in our hearts. And once again, we're not even aware of that. And we can then silently develop habits of distrust in the Lord in various areas of our life. So if it's hidden and we don't know that, how do we find out? We pray. We ask God, just as the psalmist did, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. 
You must have the Holy Spirit shine his light on your life. And you must ask him. You must slow down enough to do this. And he will show you these sins and make you aware of them. And one of the ways we do that is through meditation and prayer. Verse 13. This might be a little bit more easy to see. These are the known sins. He calls them presumptuous sins. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So these are easier to see. These are the ones you think of. These are the ones that weigh us down. These are the things that as we go through our life, you just you know, feel dirty and this and that because what's going on in your mind or what's coming out of your mouth or the way that you're treating other people. Um, presumptuous sin. And these and sin in general, particularly presumptuous sin, it doesn't want to coexist with you. That's why I said it's not your friend. It wants to dominate you. It wants to dominate you. Psalm 119, verse 133 says, Let no iniquity have dominion over me. He uses that word. So if you think of like a dragon or some evil beast out of a science fiction movie or novel that kind of comes up and envelops the, the, the person and it just wraps its tentacles around it and then drags it to some dark place, that is sin. That's what it wants to do. And though, so how do you deal with that? Well, uh, I know John Owen wrote a great book on that um, in a, and a very long title, and it's escaping me now, Mortification of Sin. But it's, uh, and it's a lot longer than that because he was in the 16th, 17th century. But um, Eric, Lungar, yeah, Eric Lungar wrote a great book called The Enemy Within. is a great summary of that. It's about yay thick, and it's a lot easier to deal with. But... Um, I would encourage you to look at that, but that's not really what we're looking at today. But what we want to do know is that that sin must be rooted out, and it must be mortified, must be put to death. Um, then, as Scripture shows us in numerous places, we need to put something in, that, in its place. So it's often said that nature abhors a vacuum. Kind of a similar thought, right? I mean, that if you put off a sin that you've struggled with, well, you need to put something in its place or it's going to come back, right? Um, it's often we hear it referred to as the put off and put on. So, what does these sins look like? Murder, lust, hatred, rebellion, theft, etc. All of that. We know what these sins are. But how do we win the war with that? Well, dwelling on God's Word through meditation and contemplation is the put on after you've put off. And then he goes on. He says in verse 13, Only then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Only then can we be that way. Now, this is a side note. It's really just a, something I found interesting. In the term innocent that he says uh, twice, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. And then verse 13, and I should be innocent of great transgression. Uh, innocent versus not guilty. It's kind of an interesting thing. I'm not a lawyer, but I kind of, in going through all this, I ran across this. Most of y'all probably know this, but innocent means that you did not do something. And that our human courts will never declare you to be innocent. So if you hear someone say, I actually watched a program recently where a guy said, you know, he, some drama or whatever, but he went... And he said, yeah, I was, declared, he said, I was found to be innocent of this. But that would not be true. He was actually found not guilty. And not guilty means that you 
it cannot be proven beyond a shadow or before a reasonable doubt that you did whatever it was. But the psalmist looks to God to call him innocent, to declare him innocent. Just an interesting side note. Um, So, as a maintenance technician, I appreciate the fact that there is the right tool for the right job. It's It's a common saying. And we must look inward to see our sin. It's there, and sometimes it's hidden, and sometimes it's much more in the open. But sometimes we need, uh, you know, how do we do that? What tool does God provide us with in order to accomplish that task? He's given us certain tools in our box, right? Uh, We know a lot of these, the means of grace, uh, you know, reading, praying, preaching, uh, sacraments, corporate worship, singing, our fellowship, uh, meditation. Those are some of the tools that we have because, truthfully, it's not whatever is in our hearts we know as Christians is going to come out. Um, you know, uh, was it? I've never done it. I wish I would have, but the, putting the Mentos in the, in the bottle of soda water or soda, you put that in there, it's going to come out, right? You open that thing, and it's going to shoot, shoot up. And Jesus said, not about Mentos, but he said in Luke six forty five, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. In Psalm 51, verse 10, David, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, and he was praying and he was repenting, he said, create in me a clean what? Heart. Because that was what was the problem. Not this. It was this. And so here's where I really want to dwell for the remainder of our time. But to kind of bracket, I want to remember that God's Word is a love letter. God's Word is a love letter. And how do you read a love letter? Well, we read it slowly and attentively. We read it often. And so, once again, I, back in my Navy days, gone for several months at a time, I had a future, future bride. There she is. Uh, she would send me letters. I anxiously looked forward to them. I read them often. I looked at them. I smelled them. Because when women write a letter, it smells, and you can just say it comes through the mail. Uh, you smelled them. You re- I reread them over and over. And I knew exactly what was in them because I read them so often. I mean, I could picture it in my mind of, of what was going on and what part of the page. And I carried them with me, and I anxiously awaited for the next one to come because I cherished her. And so, with that in mind, we look at meditation defined. So, I want us to consider first, though, wrong meditation. How many of you, when I say the word meditation, what comes to your mind? What mental picture do you get? Do you get some guru with a long beard up on a mountaintop in India or someplace, and he's giving out, you know, wisdom or whatever? You, you know, do you think of, uh, you know, the Eastern mystics? Maybe you think of yoga class. I don't know. That's not, I'm not going to comment much on that today, but you can ask me my opinion. But, uh, but I just want us to think about this because often our society, that is what it goes to. We tend to think meditation. We tend to think, oh, well, that's kind of for these weirdos over here or for these other religions or whatever the case. I'm, but that's not it. I want us to understand that that term and that concept and that tool was God's before it was hijacked, okay? And Excuse me, Scripture has a huge amount to say about it. So what is it? Well, the analogy, you know, we talked about the feast, but 
Think about a tea bag. You drop that into hot water. You don't just go dunk, dunk, and it's done. You have to let that tea bag get saturated. You have to let it, uh, you know, uh, for it to sit in there and uh, what's, steep. That's what I'm looking for. You have to let it steep um, and then ultimately dunk it or whatever, squeeze it and all that. But you have to let it sit there and dwell in the hot water in order for the essence to be pulled out. And that is what biblical meditation is. It's like a tea bag, you know, uh, you know as we study Scripture. So here's the truth, and this is what I, whether you realize it or not, we all meditate. You all do it. I do it. We all do it. We've done it our whole lives. We do it every day. We just don't think about it. Think about it. We have, where, where does your mind go when you're just quiet and alone? Probably something, if you're like me, hobbies. Maybe your job or sports, if you're so inclined. Family, you got schedules. Maybe you think about problems. Maybe you're angry with somebody and you just spend time thinking about how angry you are with that person. Maybe lust. Some people really like to spin up a controversy in their own mind. Some people love to just spend time all day, every day thinking about politics. These are just a few. But you spend time thinking about them already. You're already doing it. Um, and this can happen anywhere. It might be in your bedroom, at your work desk. Once again, like me, before I sold the riding mower, my riding mower, I loved to, I, I don't know, I did my best thinking on a mower. And it was not, I wish I could say it was always godly, but it would just be whatever was in my mind, and I would think on that. In the car, in traffic, How's your mind in traffic? But we meditate often and everywhere, and we do it on all sorts of things. And that's why we, our life is its often like a, a Pandora's box that can easily get out of control. And when our thought life breaks out and gets out of control, it doesn't take long before that bleeds over into the form of an action. And now, all of a sudden, whether it's our speech or our actions or whatever, think about it, David again. He didn't just go jump and, and, and go snatch up Bathsheba over, or, or do it over a period. Or I've lost my train of thought. His mind first went there, and then he saw her and so forth. Then he went and got Bathsheba, and he sinned with her. And so that was the actions of whatever was born in his heart. There's a... Now, I, would, I thought it was Alistair Begg, but I found out as I researched it that he actually quotes a guy named Stephen Covey. But I love it. I hear him say this a lot when I listen to his preaching. He says this, quote, Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. So the end result of things always starts out with what is in our mind. And we cannot reasonably expect to spend our day dwelling exclusively on the things of the world and then wonder why we're not growing spiritually or gaining an advantage over our sin. Well, God wants us to simply harness that and rein it in so that we can focus for our own spiritual benefit. All right, so here we go. Here's a definition. And this comes from J.I. Packer in Knowing God. Thanks, Rob, for the reminder of this quote. 
says this, quote, Meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. It's an activity of holy thought consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. Now, that was long. So if you're trying to write it down, I'm sorry. But I'm going to read it one more time, actually, because I want us to get that. But good luck on writing it all down. Meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. It's an activity of holy thought, consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. So meditation gives you a plan for how to keep things, uh, spiritual things prominent in your mind. Isaiah 26, 3, one of my favorite passages from Isaiah, says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Perfect peace when his mind is stayed on you. So, the Puritans... The Puritans separated, they, they made an entire theology out of, out of meditation. Um, and so they actually separated meditation into a couple of different uh, categories. Uh, deliberate and occasional. And I don't want to get hung up on labels, like I said, but basically deliberate, by deliberate and occasional we mean basically planned and spontaneous. So what are they? deliberate or planned meditation. Well, this is what we might call our quiet time, our devotions, etc. The time you spend daily in God's Word that we should be doing. Um, We've all fallen victim to sacrificing our quiet time at the altar of life, right? What happens in life? It gets busy. And so if you can imagine, I was thinking of just like a, a, a boat, and, you know, you're taking on water. This boat's your life. And, man, you're getting ready to sink. But for some reason, you throw your Bible overboard because that's the first thing to go. And it doesn't really help. Uh, but that is what we do. We do it by habit. We, we, I do it. I admit it. Um, and I admit it easily because I know I'm not alone in this. But life gets busy. The first thing to suffer is our time with God's Word. But our devotion time should include, I mean, so... This is just kind of brainstorming and thinking and just from my own life or, or, or really. This is just elements that, you know, maybe you should maybe kind of work, work into your, your, scripture, your time in the Scripture. But obviously we start with prayer. Maybe a song, listening to one, singing one, whatever. Uh, reading and contemplation on Scripture. Contemplation on ourself as the Scripture applies. And prayer for both what we've read and for whatever else. We should pick something in Scripture that we see and contemplate upon our reading that day. So more on that later, but just think about what Paul Paul gave some instructions on this. Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. On how what we should be thinking on. Often deliberate meditation was split into two subcategories. 
uh, in, by the Puritans, that is. So direct and reflective. Direct meditation would be a, basically helping us to understand the scriptural topic better. Uh, so as we, you know, and, and the reason that I read verses, starting in verse 7 in Psalm 19 this morning, even though I wasn't really spending a lot of time there, was it talks about the perfection of the law of the Lord. And so in context, that's where our verses today, they flow from that, of this, this understanding of God's Word and this love for it. And so when we have a better understanding of the scriptural topic, that, and apply, that, is, that is a direct from Scripture Application. Then we have reflexive. Reflexive basically means it applies to you. Applies to how do I get this to work in my life? Uh, you know, how do I apply this application? You might call that. Uh, and it, truthfully, it can be painful. It can be a very painful thing. Sorry, not to reference that, but um, because in, you know, I was referencing back to Psalm to verse thirteen about presumptuous sin. He said, don't let these things have dominion over me. And sometimes we are under the domination of sin. We are enslaved by sin. You can read Romans 6 and talk about what we were enslaved to and what we should be enslaved to. But when we're enslaved to a sin that we have given too much room for in our lives, and like I said, it grows roots and tentacles, and it's not your friend, and it wants to rip you apart. So that is deliberate or planned meditation. Fairly simple and direct. It's the thing that we often think about. We, what I am challenging us to think more on is the next category, what he call, they call occasional or I'll call spontaneous meditation. This, I think, is where a lot of us need to grow. Once again, as I said, me too. So this is finding something holy to ponder and meditate on as you go about through your day, okay? Something that you're finding to think on during your day. It keeps our mind from wondering and doing Satan's work. It keeps our mind from wondering. It's a very useful tool in taking every thought captive and redeeming our time as instructed in Scripture, and like I said, so for me, I mentioned, it, I don't have that mower, but I don't know why. My mind would just go places when I was on the mower. And often it was, maybe I was angry at someone. And I don't know why I hated the way that my mind would work. And it would just go and ponder, well, I want to be able during my day instead to challenge myself to think and ponder on Scripture and the things that it has to say for me. And when I find myself being challenged by sinful thoughts, I can combat that with the Word of God that I keep churning over and over in my mind. And I think the reason I pray, I you know, didn't think of this, but I prayed for Don Cole this morning is because Robert, before, you know, years ago, uh, we were talking, and obviously we know that Robert's with the Lord now, but I remember him talking and challenging me to that. And he said, don't just memorize a scripture, you know, just chew on it. Just spin it around in your mind over and over again. Think of it backwards. Think of it forwards. And that's meditation. You know, he didn't really use that term that day, I don't think, but that's what he was challenging me to. Uh, so often, occasional or spontaneous meditation is it's just using maybe something from creation to dwell upon a spiritual truth. Psalm 19, the verse that we didn't read this morning, the first verse says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This, I mean, that whole first half of that whole first half, the entire, 
The first half of that psalm is talking about creation, using God's glory as a springboard to meditation and worship. And so, think, of, think often, and you say, well, okay, where else is that in Scripture? Well, think of Christ. Think of our Lord himself. How often did he refer to nature and the things of creation or teach a, a truth? Okay? John chapter 3. This is just some of them, just off the top of my head. John chapter 3, he used the wind. John chapter 4, he used water, talking to the lady at the well. He said in Luke 19, when they said, you know, get these people to quiet, and he says, if they did, the rocks would cry out. Of course, we know about the Sermon on the Mount. He referred to the lilies of the field. He referred to the birds of the air. Mark 11, he used a fig tree to paint a spiritual picture of the nation of Israel and coming judgment. So it might be something like just simply seeing a flower or a bumblebee or, or maybe something as grand as the, as, uh, the Grand Canyon and dwelling on the, on the concept of the Creator, the one who created that. So we see the creation and it's this glorious to us and to our senses. How beautiful must the Creator be? How much more? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Sometimes it might be, and this, this, this doesn't often happen to me, I guess because I was preaching today. I actually woke up about four this morning and couldn't go back to sleep for a little bit. But I spent time thinking about what we're learning today, and I spent time thinking about this passage. So if you can't sleep, that's spend time thinking about God's Word. If you can't, uh, you know, um, and in our, I was going to make a plug for our men's discipleship group. We don't meet for long each week, but when we do, what we're doing is we're using Scripture. We're, we, uh, you know, fighter verses from Desiring God. Download the apps like two bucks. And it's great. It's a great thing to keep Scripture. I mean, if you look at your telephone right here, it's like it, I got it on my screensaver, whatever, the, the thing at the front. And so it's always there when I pick it up. But it's, it's, it's a 365 days of just Scripture memory. Uh, you can spend time praying for somebody. So, and so those are just another opportunity that you might have to utilize this, this type of meditation. Now, that was all kind of in the positive sense. Now, in the negative sense, can, you, can that spur some, some contemplations of holy nature? Well, yeah, it can. So if you're a plumber... Think about this. You pull out of a, a clogged drain, a nasty, disgusting, stinky, foul-looking thing that was preventing water from draining. You look at that, you say, man, that's ugly. That's foul. That's stinky. But it should bring us, you can say then, look at that. How much worse can sin? This is a representation of something ugly. Sin is ugly to God. God is holy, and he's perfect, and he's everything that this is not. And so just even something as mundane and simple as that can be used as a springboard for contemplation on the holy. It could be taking that scriptural passage that you read that morning and not just remember, oh, okay, I kind of got ahead of myself, not memorize but turning it over and over in your mind throughout your day, looking at it from every angle, launching into prayer as the Holy Spirit challenges you and brings things to light about your life, your attitude, and your habits. And as he does that, just as the psalmist prayed, he says, 
he, you know, show me my sin. And if you, as pastor told me that, um, the guy that preached actually the day I was actually installed as an elder, ordained as an elder, uh, he said, he challenged me, he said, ask God to show you your sin, and he will do it. And he's absolutely right. He will do it if we want to see it. So, like I said, that's the point of taking that teabag analogy or the feast analogy. Because now you're steeping in the Word of God. You're chewing upon the cud of God's Word, as the Puritans put it. And thus digesting it properly and effectively. It's bringing your mind into subjection to the Lord's work in you. And it begins to take over you and transform you. But you might say, I have an objection. Okay. You say, so if I'm sitting here just thinking about these things over and over again, uh, you know, couldn't, isn't this how, where heresy comes from? Isn't this where heresies of the past were born from? Uh, as people would begin to speculate on spiritual things and in, in these mental exercises. So, well, in a way, yes, and that's valid because there were heresies that happened from people's just ramblings in their own mind that they would spur up. Um, I was talking to a brother just the other night, talking about a friend of his who had had some weird concepts you know, this, this, always be careful, by the way, if people say, hey, I've been thinking, and I think I've, got, I think I've got this figured out. It's kind of a new thing, okay? No new things, right? We have the finished Word of God, and it's effective, and it's perfect and complete. But that being said, so the warning there for us is that ensure that, our ground, that we're grounding our meditations in Scripture, okay? As, this is where we trust God to lead His people, to grow His people, he said, we're not, and obviously we know we don't want to play fast and loose with God's Word. But by using it as a launch pad for our contemplations, the Holy Spirit and the Word working together in our lives will keep us orthodox. So ground your meditation in God's Word. So, as we said, the Puritans made an entire theology out of, out of meditation. They likened it to that feast that we talked about. They said, another thing they said was, hearing a Sunday sermon is like pouring water through a sieve. You know, those things you have in the kitchen to strain out your noodles and stuff. So they said it's like pouring water through a sieve. 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 I think it's a sieve. Most of, most of it goes through and it cannot be recounted decently later on. So much of what you hear today may or may not. I hope it will stick with you, but how much, right? Is it, uh, it's found throughout Scripture, meditation is. And too many places, honestly, for one sermon. If, if you look for it, it's just like a lot of things. If we're, we're kind of enlightened to the understanding of the idea of things, it's of a topic. You find it everywhere in Scripture. I challenge you to do that. But think about some of the people in Scripture that we see meditating. So Isaac was one of them. When he went out to the field, uh, when, he, when Rebecca, his wife, was brought to him, he went out to meditate. Joshua. David, clearly, right? authored many of the Psalms. Solomon, Mary. Mary treasured these things in her heart and pondered them. And obviously our Lord Jesus, Peter, Paul, they all show examples of it. And I mean, Psalm 119, as we said, is just rife with references to meditation. And Paul gives a great amount of instruction in his epistles on how to set our mind and our thinking right. He may not always use that term meditation, but he is definitely describing it. So, some benefits of it is that it, it, well, it aids, clearly, it aids in scriptural memorization. And not just as an aid in memorization, 
but it also then will apply that scripture to our walk and to our life, which ultimately is the goal. We want it to work for us uh, through, uh, in our lives. It'll w- help us to win, it'll win the war over sin, and it's going to free our minds for proper worship. It will allow us to grow and develop our praise and adoration of God, and therefore it will enlarge our capacity for worship. It'll help us to develop good habits that will become easier the more that we do them, just like any habit. It fights unbelief. It will fight unbelief. Do you struggle with unbelief? Spend time meditating on Scripture. It'll shift the focus to God, and it gets the focus off of us because that is, it's like a magnet. Our focus is just always to me, to me, to me. Meditation shapes our worldview and builds a habit of biblically thinking through decisions. It helps us to see our habits and then how our habits set us up for sin. So think about Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's thinking ahead, knowing what those moments are when you are prone to sin. Knowing that time that that you would be most tempted to do so. Recognize it. See it afar off. Owen called it the watchman mentality. Looking way down the road as like a watchman and say, look, I know that's the point where I am tempted to sin, so I want to be on my guard even more so at that point. Meditation develops spiritual discipline. It is a spiritual discipline in itself. Develop, it helps us to develop godly fruit in our lives and enlarges our thanksgiving our love, our joy, our peace, etc. And as an anecdote, so many of you know that for work, I recently was in the UK, and apparently I went unknowingly with COVID to the UK and got my buddy sick, and I was fine in a day or two. He was not. It rocked his world. But he got quarantined in his room for several days. Now, I was excited about going on that trip with him. I had the opportunity when it was pitched to me to like pick who I wanted to go. I always wanted to go with him. He's my dear godly friend, Dave. And, uh, and so we finally got to go on a trip together. Well, he was in that hotel room, but so I was supporting our aircraft and, you know, at the job of the show that we were doing. Throughout the day, I would be getting these texts on my phone. They were scriptural, they were portions of scripture or something that he was reading, a portion of what he was reading, or uh, from, a, from another book. He took Pilgrim's Progress. And again, I gave him that book several years ago. He reads it every year, loves that book. And he, and he was just contemplating that stuff. He was, um, you know, send prayers. I was like, all day long, these things kept coming in. And I said, wow, somebody's been meditating, you know. So the point is that it was enlarging, you know, his, his capacity for just all these things and for knowing God's word. And he was rejoicing in it. And it was just overflowing from him. We sing hymns here, okay. Hymns are born from meditation, how many do you think were written hanging around the Chinese buffet or something? Not many, I would venture to guess. But they're born from deep meditation. So all of the ones we sing, you think about that as you, you know, because some of these are so, or they're all so rich in the wording and, and, and the concepts. But I think of my mother's favorite hymn was How Great Thou Art. It was a poem, actually, originally written by a man named, a Swedish guy named uh, Carl Boberg, and later, unbeknownst to him, set the music in various languages 
the version that we sing today, English version, is, was translated and then, I'll say, streamlined by an English mis- missionary named Stuart Hine. He served in, uh, like, the Ukraine and, and Eastern Europe area uh, in, the, like, the 20s and 30s. But he added new verses when he was, so he translated, and then it was, he added new verses when he was confronted, particularly with the beauty of the Carpathian Mountains in the Ukraine, and the way that the people in the villages would joyously respond to the gospel. And thus he was moved by deep contemplation and meditation on these things from creation, and he was moved to praise and adore the Creator God. And that's how we end up when we sing that song. That is what he's talking about, because it talks about the beauty of nature and creation. Um, But meditation and prayer, I I have to say some words about that. Psalm 19, verse 14 uh, says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So this, this is the language of sacrifice. This is language of setting something before God as at the altar of worship that be acceptable in your sight. And as hard as it is, we must make the sacrifice of our time in order to reap the benefits of our quiet times of contemplation. So, what that means is that we must, using scriptural language, redeem. I don't think the ESV says that, but I know like New King James says, redeem our time. Uh, snatching it up, making the most use of it wherever we can find it. Redeem our time by pairing our, med- our meditation with prayer. So like, think about a bookshelf. You know, you have, uh, you know, all them books up there. If you don't have bookends, they're just going to flop over. If you have bookends up there and you have a grandson, then he's just going to come and tear them all down anyway. But, but we're thinking about bookends. We're bookends. You've got meditation, you have prayer. And they help get, and they help, each one helps us get the most from the other. Puritans, again, say that prayer ties the knot in our meditation. So, moving on then to, I want to think about meditation as applies to the Lord's Day. Just some general thoughts and ramblings I had here. So, when I say these, I'm just going to say, I am talking as much to myself because I, I believe these are a bit confronting. They are to me. I'm talking as much to myself as I am to any of you. And they may be challenging, but I assure you, we all fumble. We are all guilty. But then that's why we're here, right? So just as pastors and teachers uh, for Sunday school or whatever, they got to meditate to produce sermons and lessons. So also, you're called upon to listen, to think, and to challenge yourself and each other, based upon what you hear and participate in. Because, let's face it, corporate worship is participation. So, Sunday sermons, they are, the, they are perfect food for chewing on. They're perfect for that. But I have to ask you, if I was to walk up to you 20 minutes, or an hour, or a day after hearing a sermon, would you be able to recall it. Would you remember what is able, what, or would you be able to remember what was said? Do you think ahead and look at the text prior to Sunday in order to become acquainted with the theme and the scripture? 
so that you're able, better able to listen and then to participate. If we, it's a good practice, um, and I admit I don't always do it, once again. But it's wonderful when you do because you can come in here a little bit more in the context and armed, ready to listen to what's being said and to get more for, from it. I want to challenge us to remember that participation for Sunday begins on Saturday. In other words, go to bed, y'all. Get ready for the Lord's Day. It is tomorrow. You know, you might be accustomed to staying up late. Just, you know, make, set your mark a little bit earlier so that you can get in here. So you can prioritize worship. And, that ev- and Sam would appreciate me saying that means Sunday school, right? <laughs> so um, when, we have the, when we have the quiet time before our call to worship, what are you doing? What's going on in your mind? When Becky's playing the piano and we have that time, are you, are you kind of getting ready for worship? Do you spend time praying and pushing out the mundane things of the world so that you'd be prepared? Or are you distracted by a telephone or a phone? My daughter keeps telling me, don't call it a telephone, but a phone. Are you distracted by a phone, maybe a toy, or maybe church responsibilities? A lot of us have a lot of things going on on a Sunday around here. Are those things... You know, are we over there you know, trying to you know, work out this, that schedule? Sometimes those things happen, but by and large, I want to challenge us. Use that time for what it's designed for, which is to contemplate, to think on just, just getting quiet in your mind before the Lord. In a little while, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. How about that? Do you spend time pray in prayer and repentance prior to that, prior to the Lord's Supper during the time that we afford you to do that? Are you asking the Holy Spirit to help you discern your errors, as our psalmist says? Well, here's just an interesting thought. When we have the benediction, what is your response? Are you one of these folks that just jump up and switch over to sport mode and at the amen? You hastily, you get right up, you go back to, right back into the worldly and the mundane thoughts? Do you rup, rush abruptly out the door in order to do whatever it is? Or do we thoughtfully and reverently depart? Do you ponder what you have heard? I'm not saying don't get up and talk to people and not that, but, you know, just... What are we talking about? Do we go straight to Super Bowls and stuff like that? I don't even know if it's football season. I am not a football. I'm not a sports person, so forgive me if I step on anybody's toes uh, on that. So, or whatever it is. So, I mean, what do we? Where Where does your mind go? So, lastly, about that, what does the remainder of your Sunday look like? So, hopefully. Hopefully still your thoughts are flavored by what you heard that morning uh, as you speak to your family and to your friends around the dinner table and whatnot. I hope so. Hopefully you're carrying on these conversations. And I just want to say it's not my turn, but it's, it's called the Lord's Day, not the Lord's Morning. So we have the day off, okay, by and large, and we should spend some of it in meditation and talking about what we've learned and what we said. So,
kind of, so I want to talk about some of the enemies of meditation. Because I think by now we all know that there are enemies out there. So after considering all that we've, we have, we've probed the immense spiritual benefits of biblical meditation. We must consider that not everybody wants us doing this. And let's face it, Satan does not want you meditating, at least on godly things. And he will do anything that he can to knock you off the rails. Trials happen. Many of us, I mean, if you, you know, we, many of us are in the midst of trials right now, physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it may be. Uh, and if you aren't, you will be, because, or you have, you know, all that say God uses trials greatly in our lives. So our trials should help with our devotion. But often we allow our trials to consume us. We are, we uh, as a nation are far too easily entertained. And we are far too easily distracted. And the reason I believe, this person believes, that meditation has lost its foothold in modern Christians' life is the technological advances of the 20th century regarding entertainment. I'm not saying entertainment's bad, y'all. I'm not. I like entertainment. It's fun. It's entertaining. But we... But it can so easily loom over us and overshadow what we should be thinking on. And I know there is not a soul in this place today who is not convicted of that. Because we all struggle with that. So people have always been the same throughout history. Uh, but I do believe, me again, the falling away has, of that has accelerated as we find more mindless ways to pass our time. So David Saxon in his book says this, quote, Many hear sermons, read Christian books, maintain a semblance of biblical reading, and listen to Christian music. Yet they remain weak in holiness, love, and service. Why? The answer is a lack of serious thinking on the Word combined with a life dominated by entertainment. End quote. The bottom line is, folks, that we do not like to think anymore. And so thusly we have developed shorter and shorter attention spans. And so we must challenge ourselves to switch over and to be content with Scripture and not with entertainment. You know, put that off. Put on something more holy. We don't like, it's another enemy of meditations, we don't like to come out and be separated from the world. Often, there might be a slug of people over here, and one of them is a Christian, but it's often hard to tell the Christian apart. We've all been there. But I challenge you, ask yourself, is that me? If someone from worship came by or from, my, from, from RBC came by and looked at me and heard what I talk about and with my friends and my coworkers or whoever, would they be able to tell that I'm a believer? On a personal level, I struggle. I do struggle with gossip when I get into my workplace. Politics of the place and all, there's a lot of probably truth to some of it, but it's a very, I've struggled for years with this, a very thin line. Between, between the, um, you, know, go, you know, what is actually true and helpful, and then sliding in the gossip. And I struggle with that. You can pray for me on that. But for the first time pretty much ever, at least on this shift that I work, God has sent me a brother, <laughs> a believer. He does not know that, and he probably will listen because I'm going to send him this, and he'll probably know now because I never told him in person. But he has no idea what... 
accountability he gives me by just being there. And it allows me to remember, wait a minute, there's a brother. And I, and I just, it brings something to mind. It says, I need to watch my tongue. I need to watch what I say and what I think on. Um, and that it should be more helpful. So God uses us in each other's lives to do that, to think on the right things. Another enemy is we don't, we, we might think that meditation is for pastors. That's not for me. That's for the pastor to do. I just show up and hear what he has to say. How about this? We don't like silence. How many of I challenge you, spend this week going and getting in your car and turning off the radio, me included, right? I, not, I don't listen to radio. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Turn it all off. Go in silence. See how long you last. You might find out that silence is a bit uncomfortable. So we don't like silence. We're too used to having our minds occupied. So, let's face it, we're lazy. Things are too difficult. Meditation's too difficult. You know, I don't want to read a book when a soundbite will do. And really the big one, really probably is over-encompassing a lot of these, is busyness. We're busy. We are swamped. And we just don't have time to slow down for biblical meditation. We don't. Now, that might be from working dad to soccer mom or anywhere in between. We're busy. But think about this. We still always seem to accomplish what we want to do every day. We make time for the things that are important. So we got to surrender those plans daily to the Lordship of Christ. So lastly, I want to go through these. I'm sure we're about time because, yeah, probably getting close. But practical advice on how to start in biblical meditation. This, and honestly, a lot of these come from Saxon's book. So give him full credit there. So having talked at length about the impediments to meditation, things that get in our way, I want us to be encouraged. I want us to leave an encouraging note. None of this... None of us does this perfectly. The Lord recognizes your efforts, and he will reward them. I read this by Alistair Begg this week, and I love it. He says, quote, For the Christian, there's always a reason to repent, but never a reason to despair. Isn't that awesome? For the Christian, there's always a reason to repent, but never a reason to despair. I love it. So, guys, I want to be an encouragement to you. Find out where you sin, repent, but don't despair. So number one, starting with biblical meditation, plan it or it will not happen. It's like a lot of things in life. Uh, ever since my wife gave me Google Calendar a few years ago, I've, I have not been yelled at and said, oh, I told you about that, why don't you remember? Because it's in my calendar. <laughs> if I get it in the calendar, we're good. If you want me to do something with you, which I don't have a lot of invitations for, but we just... Tell me beforehand and we'll get it on the calendar and we'll, it'll happen. But plan it or it will not happen. Biblical meditation. Be consistent in it because let's face it, habits take practice. Your good habits took a while to start, or I would say your bad habits took a while to get going and to get established. Your good habits will also take a while to get going and become established for you. So be consistent. Find a time that works for you. 
Okay, best time that works for you. So obviously for a lot of people, morning is the best time. It's quiet. It's before the world spools up in your mind and things that get going. But maybe you, maybe evening works well for you. There's no, no hard, fast rule on this. If it works for you, do it. Maybe, you know, like I said, in the evening, maybe you have had, been all spun up in the world and this is a good way of calming down prior to retiring for the night. So find a time that works for you. Okay, but you got to be free of distractions. That's the next one. Free of distractions. Think about how Jesus went to a quiet place to meditate and to pray. He didn't do it in the middle of the 5,000 or while he was teaching in the temple or wherever. When he was surrounded by people trying to throng him, trying to be healed. He got away. He did all that, but he, when it's time for him to meditate and pray, he went to a quiet place. Solitude, well, it's kind of free to share. Solitude and darkness sometimes helps block out distractions. If you find yourself being distracted by things that you see, maybe try to turn the lights down. See what, that, see what sort of effect that has for you. Start by reading Scripture slowly. Start by reading Scripture slowly. So, you know, Ronnie, he leads us in our, in our, in our yearly, uh, you know, you know, reading through the Bible and so forth. And it can be real easy when you're on a Bible reading plan to, like, man, I'm behind. I only got a couple minutes. So, you know, okay, I'll read, 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 bam, check, out the door, okay? Read God's Word slowly. If you're finding that you can't get it all right, maybe read a shorter section. Spend time in the Word. Don't be driven by a schedule. Dare I say even the 365-day reading plan. If you get behind, you get behind. Read God's Word so it's effective in your life. Because remember, it is a loving relationship. It's a love letter to you from your Lord. A feast takes time. It is not minute rice and ramen. So choose a meditation topic from your scripture or whatever that is applicable to your point in life. Some ideas. Maybe God's character. Dwell on God's character. You can never go wrong. The atonement. Beautiful. What about sin? We kind of mentioned that. You can dwell and ponder upon the ugliness of sin to drive you to a deeper level of worship. Joy, peace, love, providence, eternity, heaven. What about hell? Can you meditate on hell? Yeah, you can. Meditate on, on, on the, the hor- horrid idea and understanding of hell and how terrible that is for someone who has to spend eternity there. You can meditate on wisdom and folly, just etc. There's, there's literally, there is no end to the topics that you may gather from Scripture or from creation or whatever to ponder, to keep your mind occupied. So whether positive or negative, okay, in, and I say positive or negative, obviously as like something about God's character advice, something like sin, that's my terms for positive and negative, but something you dwell on, it should be something that drives us to stronger worship. So start small, y'all. Choose simple themes. Just I, I won't read it, but look at Philippians 4, verses 7 and 8, where Paul gives us some instruction for the type of things we are to think on. So anything that fills out that realm there and satisfies that, that, that's what you want to spend time on. Because the more that you do this, it will become pleasant. It, 
And it will produce change in you. You want to be changed for the better. Spend time meditating. You will be changed. So keep it. Keep at it until you see some sort of profit from it. So I just wanted to end on this, that I don't want you to misunderstand that this is not a bunch of mechanical processes or a vending machine or a legalistic, you know, do this or don't do that. Or just it's, it, These rules are not meant, you don't even have to call them rules, my word. These, these aren't meant for anything to burden you down to make you feel guilty or anything like that. The point is, and understand that, that is that holiness, <laughs> don't hate me for this, holiness takes work and dedication, okay? We're not working our way to holiness, but I think you understand what I mean. We, we have to struggle in the Word in order, to, in order to become more like Christ. That's what I mean by that. It takes dedication, and these things are simply guidelines meant to help you find greater awe and joy in having more of God's will and His character revealed in you because that is the goal. On this road to sanctification that we're all on, on this side of the grass, that we are here, the goal is to become more like Christ on the day that we go into eternity than the day that we were born again. That's the goal. And sometimes it's like one of these little Wall Street charts or whatever that's up and down. Sometimes really way down if it's Wall Street. But it's just, and so, but the trend should be an inward and upward increasing in holiness. So, in closing, I just want us to understand that meditation is susceptible to, it's, it's susceptible to becoming a chore. And I want to warn you with that, that it's, it can become a chore that eventually falls away into unimportance in our lives. But Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So by meditating on Scripture, our roots will grow deep, as the rest of the psalm goes on to talk about. It will, our roots will grow deep, and we will then be able to weather the storms of whatever trials come our way. So are you in a trial right now? Meditate on Scripture. Spend some quiet time challenging yourself to memorize it, to chew on it. And when those thoughts in your mind come up throughout the day, those thoughts of despair, those thoughts of discouragement, get your Scripture out. Chew on it. Learn from it. Steep in it. Say it like Robert told me. Say it backwards. Say it forwards. You know, think about what the words actually mean. Spend time defining each word in the phrase, whatever. Get your mind on Scripture. Or like I said, if you're out, if you're at the Grand Canyon and see the beauty of it, Lord, you know, and then you want to sing how great thou art, do it. That's how that song was written, from the beauty of the mountains. But you will be able to grow and weather in the storm. So growing as a Christian is tough, but it's worth the fight. And the fight will never end until the day that we are in in eternity. So work to employ this powerful but yet very undervalued and underused tool in your own life. Amen.